G'day and welcome to the Mind Your Body Show, episode number 68. I'm your host, Jacob Andre, and today I'm talking to Fleur Elizabeth. Fleur, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. One of the first things I like to ask people when they come on is, what did we interrupt in your day right now? Oh, that's a great question. Um, So normally around about, well, right now I'm downloading videos, actually. I'm, I'm downloading nine videos at this particular point in time because I'm uploading 112 videos onto my new website. So that's what you're interrupting right then. You've already, you already mentioned the website, so can we say what the website is? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's Change Talk Coaching. It's a new business that I'm launching and it's all around helping women that have suffered some kind of abuse or trauma in their life master their relationship with food and alcohol. That's great. The reason why I ask, can we share it, is that I know it is very new and I don't even know, is your website at the time of recording this right now actually live? No, it's not. You'll get, you've had the first sneak preview and as, as of now, like I said, I'm just loading up these last videos. I've actually got a trial of women at the moment going through the course. They're going through the first three modules, um, uploading the last four. Um, so it's exciting. I'm going to do a soft launch um, 1st of September or like a market launch 1st of September. Um, so, yeah, it's new. It's, it's very exciting. I'm a very proud woman at the moment. That's awesome you sh- and so you should be. Uh, and I feel very privileged as well to have had a sneak peek of this website. Uh, so yeah. let's get right back to Fleur, uh, young Fleur, and tell me a little bit about yourself. I'll go into lots and lots of detail um, because I know what will inevitably come up is how you ended up in this, but I want to end up there. So let's go right back and talk about everything from the beginning. Okay. Um, I was born into uh, a family of two older brothers, mum and dad. Dad was a farmer and mum was a at the time, like a burgeoning chef. She had a cooking school in the country town that we lived in. Um, I was the youngest of three. I was the only female. Um, I think I was the naughty one, apparently, Um, but I was just a very curious um, young woman. My mum always called me a free spirit. Um, interestingly enough, um, when when we're talking about younger years, when I was three, I got run over by a car and I lost the right side of my face and I lost my nose, um, I lost all the skin off my face. They had to skin graft from my bum um, and they took a bit of cartilage out of my hand here and they rebuilt my nose. And you can't see it at all, like I've got no scars. Um, but that was actually something that I always used to tell people, oh, I got run over in Australia, I never really understood it. But it's quite relevant to stuff that's happening um, now. Um, Anyway, I went to boarding school when I was 12. Um, I got shipped down to Melbourne from the country, from Albury. Um, I went to the same school as my mum did, St Catherine's. Um, And my mum had a restaurant. My dad had a sheep and wool company. Um, They were very, you know, city but country people. Like my mum grew up in the city, but my dad was a real country man. So we sort of had that mix of flavours. My whole life was surrounded with food, with my mum being a chef. Like all my memories are being in the kitchen with her. Um, So food was a very big part of my life in that it it sort of became my DNA. Like I 
everything that I did in life, somehow food was revolved, you know, food was involved in it. Um, when uh, I left school, I studied um, university. I, at university, I studied English. I was a really talented writer. Um, but actually study at that time wasn't really for me. Um, so I went off and I got a job and I decided that I wanted to earn money and find out who I was and then I'd go back to study later when it was more relevant. Um, my mum never wanted me to be a chef. She never wanted me to get into the food industry. She said it was too antisocial and too hard work. Um, so... Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do from a, like a professional point of view. Mum wanted me to do something serious and professional. I always wanted to write or sing or do acting. She never really wanted me to, you know, follow any of those vocations. Um, so my brother did IT and it was when the IT.com boom was coming and it was getting really crazy. It was when everyone was getting an email address and so I followed him into the IT world. I had no idea what the IT world was about, but I got myself a job in this IT integration company and all I knew was that I was really good with people, I could talk to anyone, and my mum used to always say that I could sell ice to the Eskimos. So I just went and told this guy that he needed to give me an opportunity and I would prove that I could do this and I'll give it a go. And he loved my gumption. He loved my, um, you know, that I had this unbelievable confidence. And so he gave me a, like a phone book and he said, okay, go on cold call and see how you do. And he gave me some training on a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but I really had no idea what I was doing. Anyway, through a cold call, I um, rang Mitre 10 and I convinced this guy to give me a meeting. And from that one phone call, I ended up... Um, doing the biggest deal this company had done in five years. And it was um, rolling out new computers and printers to all the um, MITRE 10 networks across Australia, and it was massive. And it was just because I could build a relationship with this dude from MITRE 10. Anyway, <clears throat> that that deal got me sort of on this stage in the IT world and I got headhunted. And I went to WorldCom, um, which I don't know if you remember, WorldCom went to Chapter 11, 20 years ago, it was um, Bernie Evers was this massive uh, scandal of embezzling money and things like that. But um, with them, they moved me to the UK and I was um, managing an outsourcing project for BP. And that was, again, all very technical, all very big high-flying. Um, from there, I moved back to um, Australia and then I went to Singapore all doing IT outsourcing. And then I had this really successful career. I earned a lot of money. It was um, a lot of fun. I did a lot of travel. Um, I spent a lot of money at the same time. Um, I was kind of, everything was about experience. But I was never really doing what I wanted to do. I never felt passionate. I just sort of felt like I'd, I'd fallen into all of these sort of things because I because, it, you know, I was good at it in some way, but was it a passion? No, it wasn't. Anyway, I ended up in, um, in Singapore and it was about 2007, 2009, and I met this girl um, called Belinda um, that I worked with. And she was, you know, when you meet someone in life that they say, you need to be honest, you need to be truthful. You know, that person that first tells you to get your shit together and is really, really honest with you, but 
it's hard to take because we all choke on our truth, but you kind of know she's right. And she was that person that kind of shook me by the shoulders and went, look, you're fabulous, but you're not, you're not in the right place and you're not doing what you should be doing in life. And if you want to go and do food or if you want to go and sing, go and do all this stuff. If you want to write, go and do all this stuff. Anyway, so um, I sat down and I started writing and I wrote a blog and within months I had 25,000 followers. It was crazy. It was called The Other Side and I would write about life, love and philosophy and I would I would observe people's behaviours and relationships and things like that and then I'd look at it from one point of view and then I'd flip it on its head and talk about the other side of that experience. Anyway, people loved it. I had people writing to me. I had people coming to me for advice. It was this you know, crazy popular thing that I just didn't ever think that was going to be that popular. The first blog I actually wrote about was um, being a six-foot woman in in Singapore, being taller than everyone, and I was just looking down at everyone's boobs and I just wrote about women's boobs and, like, all the different names about boobs and how beautiful they are and it was just an observation about how we relate to boobs um, and that became very popular. Anyway... Um, my dear friend, I used to cook for her all the time and I used to talk about how one day, you know, I'd really love to have my own food store. I'd love to I'd love to cook for people. I was always feeding people, you know, through this life of mine with my mother being a chef. I, I think I, I learned how to communicate to people through food. You know, I learned how to um, show people how much I love them through cooking for them. It was such a pleasure for me. And cooking was like meditation. It was this thing that just gave me peace and harmony and, and as I said, a lot of love and pleasure. Anyway, my dear, dear friend committed suicide and uh, she was five months pregnant and she threw herself off a balcony um, with her husband lying next to her. And it was just that big life jolt, you know, Jacob, that I... I needed, you know, she was the person shaking me by the shoulders, but her death really went, come on, you need to live your life. This is this is a wake-up call. So I resigned from this big, crazy IT job earning, you know, 450000 a year, like stupid money, and I went and opened a restaurant in Singapore and I put all of my money in it. I built this brand. Um, the restaurant was called The Big Sheila, which was my nickname as I was growing up because I was always taller and broader than everybody and it was just this incredible journey. I call it my life's MBA, you know, and I made every possible mistake under the sun and I learned so much. But this brand that I created was all about this personal experience that I was having with you, my client, the eater, the person that was coming to my table and my food. It was very much a connection. It was I'm feeding you, I'm talking to you, I'm making your life better through my food. And I was in the paper, um, I won the Singapore Entrepreneur of the Year, um, on covers of books in Singapore. Um, they wanted to do cookbooks with me, they wanted to do a reality TV show about this woman who went from IT to owning her own restaurant, turning her dreams into a reality type of thing. Um, and it was all very, very shiny and the brand was very shiny and I had people lining up and we had people booking in advance and it was crazy. It was so popular. But like I said, I made every mistake under the sun and I, I think I had, um, I, I was too emotionally connected to this, this experience and the brand of the Big Sheila and I never, 
separated the business from from that and I was probably just um, not very clever with some business decisions and not very clever with who I trusted. Um, And so my business partnership was an absolute flop and um, was a disaster, unfortunately. Um, I went into business with two bankers and my godfather, none of whom had any experience in the hospitality industry and none of whom really understood, you know, how to run a restaurant. They just thought it was a little cafe. And um, it was it was horrible. Anyway, we dissolved the business partnership and very, very sadly we closed my restaurant and it was like, I, you know, a part of me died and it was like I lost a child. Um, and... I got this job um, because I had to get a job because I put all my money into into this restaurant. So I had nothing, right? I had to sell absolutely everything that I had to pay off debt. And I was like this little pauper living on a friend's sofa after I closed the restaurant going, what just happened to my life? Um, And I, you know, really massive identity issues and really didn't understand what, you know, what was this world where I'd just been through? Anyway, this man offered me a job to come in and work for his company, which was a very large global food chemical company. And they loved my profile because I had this strong business background with a lot of structure and a lot of corporate strategy. Um, I think I mentioned to you when we first met that I was a Beale architect in my IT career. It's just this crazy title. I used to structure very large deals. But then I had this creative side and I... Oh, I created all the food at the restaurant at the Big Sheila and all the food that won awards and, you know, people coming in and taking photos of and things like that. Um, and they thought that was a great way to bring, you know, a different way of dealing with these large brands and taking their food and branding to the next level. So I was um, running two very large global brands for Asia and, um that was an eye-opening, eye-opening experience. Um, I was doing food concepts um, in the, um, uh, let's say, burger industry and then also the snack industry as well. Um, what I got exposed to there was all of the stuff that goes on behind closed doors, all of the stuff that goes into food today that people just don't know about all of the chemicals that are created um, in products to create mouthfeel, to create salivation, to create the desire to want to eat more. And things like when we have low-fat products, how they actually take, you know, the dairy out of the low-fat products, they can still have the taste. And that's all with these chemicals that creates a waxy feel on the tongue and the fatty feel on the tongue and the salivation to want to keep drinking. When actually what they're drinking is a really highly toxic chemical. And it uh, just it was just one of these things. I'm like, hang on a second, hold on. These big global brands are so shiny and everybody loves them and they've got these million, you know, millions, millions of dollars marketing budgets and everyone believes all the hype about yum, how tasty and how better for you these products are. But actually they're creating a lot of chronic disease, a lot of issues with type 2 diabetes, um, hypertension, heart disease, um, antisocial behaviour, ADHD, all of these things that are now modern-day normal chronic disease didn't exist 
before the food company started creating a lot of these sort of stuff in the 80s or before like especially low-fat diets came in in 82. And I, I don't know, it just, it was one of these big life again choices of is this my value system? Is this actually where I, where I need to be or what I, what I should be doing? Because this is really juxtaposed to, you know, what I value in terms of, you know, feeding people and looking after people and loving people through food. And actually what this was doing was killing people and, and destroying our health and creating this world, you know, crisis of, of chronic health. Um, and so this exposure to stuff that is all very behind closed doors and, you know, I can't give too much information away, otherwise I'll get sued. But it made me go and think about, okay, so if I've got this passion for food and I've got this passion for feeding people and I've got this new knowledge now, then how can I help? So I went off and I retrained as a nutritional health coach and I went and worked with this um, a New York-based um, institution and studied nutritional health coaching and got on the bandwagon with a whole heap of other individuals that were quite passionate about helping people understand what is in food today and how food relates to them as a bio-individual because, you know, we're all different and what is, you know, food that makes me vital and stand up straight and get up in the morning and go might be your poison for example, and it was this wonderful um, in-depth um, expose into a hundred different diets and how those diets have impacts on all of us as, as human beings in, in our bio-individual needs. Um, so that's where health coaching started for me and I was still working in the corporate industry and it was this, I needed the money and I'm just starting this new career. I needed the money and I'm just going to build up my knowledge and build up my knowledge and also, if I'm honest, take with me more knowledge while I was in this sort of corporate area. Um, and then I think it just, just got all a bit too much, you know, being sort of in this conflict of values that I was living in. So I resigned from the corporate world and decided that it was time for me to get out of Singapore. Man, it's hot there. I mean, you live in Darwin. I mean, <laughs> Singapore is stifling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I moved um, and with all this study, I thought I would get myself out of corporate world, go and do some more study and just keep moving forward. So I went to Florence um, and I signed up to do a master's in food. And um, it was six months in Florence and six months in Barcelona, which was the most beautiful year of my life. I think I was 47 when I did that. And I think one of the things about studying a master's at that age is not only feeding your brain, but one of the most beautiful things about that experience was sitting in a classroom with people that were 25 or 27 and seeing the world through their eyes, you know, seeing how they experienced life and seeing what their relationships were like and, you know, how they had been brought up. And they were all from different walks of life all around the world. Um, and it was, it was a very eye-opening experience. It was, yeah, it was very beautiful. So then I um, 
got a job working in because I needed some money because health coaching, as you will well know, it's you know people want to work with you and they really they're really excited about getting involved with all of this, but it's not necessarily the first thing that people think about when they want to spend their money. And so I was doing a lot of um, coaching in groups of women. Um, I was doing a lot of free coaching to one, you know, build up my skills. Um, And I was working with a number of different clients that I was doing one-on-one sessions with, you know, every two weeks, you know, and and I I didn't necessarily have the income to be able to support myself. So I got a job doing 3D food printing um, in this technology technology startup um, in Barcelona and I was like head of sales and marketing and it was all about the future of food and what was happening in food. And um, long story short, um, I sold a big deal to sell 3D food printing to hospitals for people that have dysphagia. So instead of having pureed food, they, we would print their food on a plate and it just changed them from being depressed and suffering from malnutrition to people actually wanting to live and eating and enjoying the experience of food again. So it was a pretty amazing project. And um, What do you mean experience. you printed their food? Well, so we had like a... It was like a, like a 3D printer for food. It had five canisters in the door and... We would print like like had salmon puree, corn puree, broccoli, and mushroom, and we would set designs of a salmon fillet, a shape of a mushroom, a shape of corn, and we would print the food to the size and shape exactly of a salmon fillet, a piece of corn, a mushroom, and a broccoli, and that's what it looked like on the plate. Instead of they would just eat slop, right? They would just eat these pureed foods, which no one wanted to touch. So to see these people actually want to eat and actually transform their life through this technology, that was incredible. That's very cool. But was there any chemicals in those foods if they were in canisters? No, um, it was all fresh. It was all loaded. It was, you know, the the future of it will. They would probably put preservatives in it so it can make it can make it like um, more sustainable from a you know speed and, and adoption point of view, but this was all fresh food that we were doing. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I'm really interested in what you're saying about the food companies. So uh, tell me more about the chemicals that's in the food. Do you think that that is why there is or it's ADHD and autism and these sorts of things are more prevalent now? Yes. So... There was a, um, a report done in 1981 in the US around how um, eating dairy and eating meat was um, causing cancer and causing heart disease. And the farmers and the dairy farmers put their hands up and said, you can't put a report out like that, it's going to kill us. So the government agreed in this report, it's called the McGovern Report, that they would say, okay, eating a high-fat diet was causing heart disease and um, ill health. And so what happened is all the food companies went and they launched all of these non-fat, low-fat products, which all had high-intensity sweetness in them. And they all had these other, as I say, mouthfeel, they're called taste tools, um, types of chemicals that create the mouthfeel of the removal of fat. 
And with the introduction of these new chemicals, this is when type 2 diabetes started. This is when ADHD started within children. There was not one kid that had two type, type 2 diabetes before 1983. Really? No, never. Didn't exist. Um, and now it went from like zero and now there's one in three kids in the US have type 2 diabetes. Um, the rise of autism and ADHD behaviours are intrinsically linked to the high-intensity sweeteners but also to the increase of these herbicides and pesticides that they put on wheats and vegetables and, and whatnot. Um, these are all modern-day chronic diseases that are all related to the way people eat and what is in food today that doesn't have to go on the label. So what was it that they found in terms of saying, was that actually the case that meat and dairy was leading to heart disease? Yeah, so that was one of the um, one of the findings in this report that they did back in eighty one. Um, but you know, as as the the relationship between government, the um, farming industry and beef industry, especially um, agriculture and dairy, is so intrinsically strong. There's so much, you know, it's like this circle of, of relationships and one helping the other one feeding into the other and um, it was basically this whole report was quashed and that's when they agreed to release a, a low-fat diet is what we recommend. High fat is what's causing the disease. But that wasn't the case? The high-fat diet wasn't causing the, the disease? Um, not as much as what they were saying as the um, the animal and dairy. Yeah, they were they were basically labelling it. That's where your problem is. Yeah, because I've done some looking into this myself, and I know that there was uh, some stuff with uh, John Lovkin and Ansel Keys, and there was a debate between whether um, fat was what was leading to you know overweight, obesity, and lifestyle diseases, or if it was sugar. And from the way I understood it, the sugarcane industry sort of was backed by government and said, no, it's uh, so they went into argument and I, it was Ansel Keys who was arguing for sugar and he won out. And uh, so he was an American. And then um, John Lufkin, who was a British guy, uh, was arguing, so he was arguing that it was sugar that was the problem. And uh, so but ultimately, the American guy, Ansel Keys, um, I hope I'm getting this right, was the one who won. He was the one saying that fat was the bad one and so fat was exonerated, or fat was, you know, deemed as the, the bad one and then so we then led into this, like, whole low-fat um, diet around, like, the 70s and 80s. So as far as I can tell, though, from what the research that I've done is that the low-fat diet, of you know, which has got all of the artificial sweeteners and other preservatives and chemicals in it is the bad thing and that actually eating um, fats is actually, health, you know, health, healthy fats is actually a good thing. Yes, it is, absolutely. You know, there were so many of these lobbyists, you know, back in those days and still now. It's very hard to know, you know, when you're reading a magazine, you're picking up a magazine you, and, you, and you read these articles that something's, for a high-fat diet or, you know, for sugar or, you know, whatever it is, who's paid for that report? 
you know, and who's where? What is this report supporting? Um, there's so much research that if you, when you know, outside of this uh, this session, go and look up the McGovern report, and there's a lot of data around how that was a farce. Um, and I guess that you know, I, I came exposed to this because of the you know my studies that I had. I didn't know anything about it, but before these doctors you know taught me about it. Um, but I guess the one thing that I was taught to do is, you know, always question, you know, always question where, you know, where this report is coming from. Because you'll, you'll see a lot of um, amazing articles about sugar. You can see a lot of amazing articles about all these products that have 20% less sugar in them. But actually all of those products that have 20% less raw sugar, so raw cane sugar, actually has so much more of these offensive and incredibly damaging chemicals in them to create that sugar taste and to create that sugar high. And, I, you know, anything that has less on it, this is a, you know, less sugar, less fat, less, you know, salt, don't touch it mm. because it's my goal. So, so what do we do? So what would you, what do you suggest or what do you do in terms of we have to eat something so... What do you suggest? It's, you know, it's, it's a hard life when people are living at the pace that they are. You know, we live in the age of convenience and, you know, people are busy and you, you go to a supermarket and it is stocked with all of these amazingly shiny and convenient products. I think that's, it's, it's the question we've all got to ask ourselves you know, do I want long-term health or do I do I want convenience now? And what would what would I do or what do I do is if it's in plastic, if it's in a package, I don't buy it unless I absolutely have to do it. So for if I want a pasta, for example, I will look and I'll try and buy an organic pasta that is you know from either an Italian or a or a brand that I know. Any mass-producing, you know, um, big companies, I don't touch them. I buy fresh. I buy organic when I can. Organic doesn't always necessarily mean the the, the best answer because sometimes these days think people put organic labels on stuff and hike 20% on a price and doesn't necessarily mean that they're organic, you know. Um, and... You know, I always, always, always look at and buy fresh. That's my biggest thing. Fresh and keep out of plastic. Yeah, so fresh fresh fruit and vegetables. Yeah, but, and, okay, so an interesting thing about fresh fruit and vegetables, you go to the big supermarkets now and they have the spinach and, and the pre-made salads and things like that all sitting there in plastic. They mm. are all sprayed with a preservative. So they can sit there for two weeks. I bought a pack of spinach just to test this and it lasted for three weeks before just one leaf started to turn. Mm. So and that's a preservative. That's a chemical. So what, what, what do we do? Do we buy organic from a market or...? I, if you can buy organic, I do. Sometimes it's inexpensive. Sometimes it's too expensive for people. So I do get that. Um, 
if you can buy fruit from and fruit and vegetables from a market or a place that doesn't have a, a, any kind of wrapping on it, fantastic. That's what I would recommend. What I do sometimes is, and I don't do this all the time, I will say because I am busy too, but I will wash my vegetables um, in bicarbonate soda and water just to take those herbicides off. Yeah, so, so that works. So bicarbonate soda and water helps to shed the chemicals off it. Yeah, dissolve them. Yeah. Uh, and what about meat? Um, buy, definitely buy organic rain, um, any kind of, uh, what do you call it, range-free? Free-range. Free-range free, free free. or, yeah, grass-fed or cage-free, yeah, I suppose, with eggs. Yeah. Um, I, um, I think meat's a really delicate topic for a lot of people because it is about what's affordable. But if you can afford to buy those kind of products, it's so much better for you. And chicken? What about roast chicken that you get in a packet? Uh, the roast chicken is, um, again, range free range and organic is, is the best. And when you do get it home from a panic, you've really got to wash it down like because they are sprayed with preservatives to sit in a packet. And, yeah. you know, those, little, those pouches, they all have chemicals sitting in them to preserve. Mm. And, and so you mentioned bread and pasta, but what about gluten-free products and other types? Like is there any type of, you said, you know, like certain pasta, yes, so that's not bad because I do know that a lot of like the, the wheat it is sprayed with like herbicides and stuff to try and preserve it while it's in the silos and stuff. Um, how, what about, well, yeah, bread and pasta? So I generally won't touch any of the mainstream bread. Um, again, it's sitting there with a huge amount of chemicals just to sit and preserve it. If you look at like that sort of wonder bread, the white bread, it can sit on, on a bench top for a month, six weeks, sometimes more, and that is a preservative. So I try and buy artisan. Um, like I said, I've just made my own sourdough this morning. Um, but I try and buy artisan bread. I'm very cautious of gluten-free products um, that are packaged only because of the sugar content. They put a, a very high amount of sugar in those gluten-free products. And there's a lot of, again, what's called stabilizers, which and flavor enhancers, um, which is again, you know, they're, they're chemicals. So the reason why it's not, it, this is not just about ADHD and this is not about um, this cancer and all those sort of things, which obviously it's important, but a lot of these preservatives and chemicals that are in there, they sit in your, in your body like sediment, like they sit in your digestive tract like sediment, and that's what starts to cause the internal damage. You might not, you know, have a chronic disease today, tomorrow, in the next year, but over time all of these things impact the vitality of all of your circulatory system, all of your organs working properly, you know, all of that, you know, digestive process. And it slows everything down and that's when you start to get disease. And that's the, that's one of the biggest problems that a lot of us don't really understand about what I do today is going to impact me down the line. You know, these silent destroyers that are in these, you know, bits of plastic that taste good today because I don't really have a lot of time so I'm just going to eat that. But mm. then... 10 years down the track or five years down the track, I'm like, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering from breast cancer. So do you think that 
that can lead to something like breast cancer, the food that we eat? 100%. Yeah, 100%. Lifestyle obviously is a, is a huge factor. I mean, lifestyle is the biggest cause of cancer today. Yeah. So you do a lot of work around people's relationship with food and alcohol. Tell me a bit more about the type of people that you're working with. So the, the course that I'm about to launch is a six-week course and it's um, designed to help women of all demographics, ages, postcodes and pay grades that has had some kind of traumatic event um, in their life or um, specifically like some kind of sexual trauma within their life. And the reason why I'm um, doing this is because I have suffered um, that kind of trauma in my life. Um, and what I have um, come to learn through my own experiences and through extended study that I've done is that when you have that kind of trauma, it's, it's something that, you know, it stays with you. It's not, it's, ne- it's not something that, you know, just goes away. You know, we, we cement and we suppress these um, difficult thoughts and feelings from the trauma and because it's very hard to process. Um, trauma is not what happened to you. It's the story that you tell yourself, uh, the story that you tell yourself from the experience that you had without an empathetic witness there to support you and validate you. So a lot of the times these women have had some, some kind of attack or experience or, or um, traumatic event and no one has been there to validate them and, and tell them they're going to be okay. So that's where trauma creates this um, this this cycle of a story in your head. And so many things in life can trigger that event and it can, anything, you know, can happen. It's depending, it's a very individual process, but um, we all have the same emotional model as, as human beings. You know, we might all be intrinsically beautiful people as an individual, but we're all the same when it comes to this emotion. It's a trigger, so an event, an antecedent, something happens to us to trigger the trauma it's followed by a behaviour. So from that trigger, from that emotion, that difficult thoughts and feeling, I then go and eat pizza, chocolate, you know, overeat, binge eat or, or stop myself from eating. And then the third part of this emotional model is the consequence of that behaviour. So what happens to me after I've just binge drunk, you know, pizza, two pizzas and, and two bottles of wine or, you know, whatever it is that, you know, my behaviours are. There's a consequence from there, so either self-loathing, um, you know, fear of, of showing someone, you know, what I'm doing, um, hiding away and, and um, retracting, or having to go, oh, okay, that felt good, that feels good, but I don't have to tell anyone about it, so it's just my dirty little secret. There's, there's always a consequence of that behaviour, and it can be good and bad, and then that can create another cycle. And what happens with a lot of women with trauma and in these, in these cycles is people get stuck in these automatic behaviours. They're not aware of those three things, the trigger, the behaviour and the consequences, as I said. It's just automatic. And so I keep doing these things and I keep getting myself in these cycles, but I don't really understand why. And I don't really understand that I've got a problem, but I know something's not right. So what I'm trying to do with this course and with, you know, this next stage of my business is to help people understand their emotional model and help people understand what triggers them in their cycles 
and then give them strategies on how to manage that better with their food and and, um, drink choices. So I take people on a process of understanding where have they come from, like what were the values of their family of origin? What did they learn about food when they grew up? How were they taught to eat? How were they taught to view their body? How were they taught to understand, you know, what a, a, a body image should be? Because a lot of us are shamed, you know, by our parents about how we look, when, you know, when we're younger. And what were the values that we took on? And what were some of those automatic behaviours that we created you know, from that family of origin. And then I get these women to then re-establish what their values are today. So what is important to them today? And when you create a value structure, you then look at what are the behaviours that are associated with that value? And the reason why this is really important is because when you're trying to get yourself out of a cycle of these automatic behaviours when you get triggered... It's actually understanding, okay, what is, the, what is the woman and what's the person that I want to be and what are the values that I want to live by? And when I decide consciously about who that woman is that I want to be, I can then say these are the behaviours that I want to live by, that I want to commit to. So there's always a choice point with all of our behaviours. There's always a choice when we go, I'm going to walk towards my values and the woman that I want to be or I'm going to go against them and I'm going to go back and drink or I'm going to eat or I'm going to withdraw myself or deny. And what I teach these women is how to slow themselves down so, one, they understand their patterns and, two, they understand what that choice point is because either they're going to live towards their values or they're going to go away from that. And are they going to go back to the consequences that they've suffered before or are they going to walk towards the life that they want to live? And in that place, I give them strategies on how to do both. And it's not all about living in a perfect world. It's all, you know, there's, there's a lot around, okay, you know, realistically, when you're learning new skills, you're going to fall over. You're going to mess up. We're going to make mistakes. We're not always going to get it right. So a big part of this whole process is normalising mistakes. And it's normalising the fact that no one's perfect and things are going to go wrong but every little bit is progress. You know, we've got to look at if we take a step forward, that's progress. If I took two steps back, okay, that's learning. You know, it's not about this self-loathing, you know, I'm messed up, so, you know, God, I'm shit, you know, and that judgment that we all have and the judge inside of us and that critic inside of us creates so much, you know, behaviour, especially with women that, you know, have suffered the shame of trauma. So the, the course is education, strategy, and then some tips and tricks and, and wonderful things on what works for you. Like lots of these great little exercises to help ground people, to help them make better choices, to help them understand what their values are and help them be, you know, to live the life that they want to live. In the, in the food section, the seven modules, I've got a, a food section as well, which I help people understand how to plan for food. Like, so you said, what do I need to eat? And, you know, what should people be doing? This course is not about diets. This is not about a cup of this and a teaspoon of that. This is about a regime and a way of living for you as a bio-individual. So all of this is about helping people to choose what's right for them. And I give people a, a framework and things that they should be thinking about and, and things that they need to 
uh, pre, uh, what's, uh, implement for themselves within their lifestyle, if that makes sense. Mm. Do you do much stuff around the gut microbiome? Yeah, so I've got a separate course on how to heal the gut. Um, I wrote a book about how to heal from surgery. Um, I had a hip replacement and I wrote a book about how to um, bounce back after major surgery. And a part of that was um, healing the gut. So I've transformed what I wrote in my book into like a short course that I will launch after um, this course is launched. And that is really helping people to understand how to alkaline the gut um, I'm educating people on alkaline versus acidity in the gut and what foods will create, you know, harmony within the gut and just, again, educating on people on the importance of what the gut actually does in the body and how it's linked to, you know, the digestion of toxins, how it's linked to sleep, how it's linked to our emotions. I mean, the, the gut is the second brain uh, and so it's a... Again, it's an education, it's a strategy and, and tips and tricks on how to implement things that are right for you. I know the answer to this, but what do you mean when you say the gut is the second brain? Um, so in, in layman's terms, the gut is, well, I'm going I'm to answer it from a female perspective. This is, we house so much of our emotions and so much of our well-being is um, determined by the health of our gut and a lot of um, the way we show up, the way we sleep, um, our regulations of our uh, moods all comes from the gut and it's this, it's this epicentre of incredible um, intelligence for our body and that's where the brain tells us what to do. The gut actually is, is like the feeling of what we do. It's, it's like the experience of who we are comes from the gut. Yeah, great answer. I like it. Uh, and obviously the vagus nerve has a big part to play in that and serotonin, which is a feel-good chemical. Um, so you, your course is called Supporting Abused Women to Take Charge of Their Relationship with Food and Alcohol. Would this be suitable for a woman who hasn't been abused, who just wants to improve their relationship with food and alcohol? A woman who I worked with previously as a personal trainer comes to mind. Um, she was overweight and she was heavily rewarded as a child. Um, I think she might have been isolated a little bit. And uh, one of the things that was one of the ways that love was shown to her was through food and in particular sweet food like cakes and muffins and cookies and things like that. And so she feels loved when she consumes food, particularly when later in life she was struggling in that area of her life. So for someone like that who hasn't been abused in the sense of, you know, some, you know, uh, really bad experience, um, but an experience which has come from some form of love, could it work for someone like that that just wants to improve their relationship? Yes, 100%. I think as I touched on um, at the beginning, there's, you know, we're all the same as humans, everything's a pattern, you know, within us. So we all have our own experience of triggers, whether you've had sexual or physical abuse or not, you know, and those triggers are very relevant um, to, to each of us. 
actually um, a couple of my testers have been women that, you know, have had no issues at all and they're like, I need, I need this, you know, I need this for myself because they're all things that we all do struggle with every day. You know, we all have triggers. We all have behaviours that come from us and we all have, um, you know, a consequence. For example, I've, I've just actually gifted this course to a woman that has a fashion shop down here. She was a size 10 all of her life. She had a child. She had some stress with her business and now she's a size 16 she can't get back to where she wanted to go to she keeps doing all these fad diets and she's done the the diabetes injections and you know she's had all these problems and I just said she's like I I can't make anything work and I'm like you just need to understand yourself better darling you know you have to understand what happens to you in these cycles of your behavior and why you go and like your friend, eat the chocolate or or do the things. Work that out and that's how you can stop yourself from from doing that stuff automatically. Diets don't teach you the psychology of why you're eating this stuff. Yeah, there's an old saying, uh, weight loss, for example, or health in general is 80% nutrition and 20% exercise, which I I like and I agree. But I used to always add on and say it's 100% underpinned by mindset psychology mindset you can use those two words interchangeably yeah well so you know i i would agree with that and i i often say that our primary food comes from our relationships our career our spiritual practice our exercise within say those four domains you know this is how we live our life and this is how we sort of get fed with energy and, and vitality but it's if we have a bad relationship or we have a you know a, a shitty boss, we'll come home and go to the bottle, or we'll come home and and do something destructive because of that relationship. And then the secondary part of our food is what does the damage. So the pizza, the sugar, the chocolate, the you know the overeating or the denial of eating. And so when you understand what those four domains of your life do to you you know, and, and how it impacts your life from a choice perspective, that's when, you know, we can really start to master this whole relationship and food becomes secondary, if you know what I mean. Like this is the stuff that, that drives us and feeds us from a first point of view. Yeah, and another woman who I worked with comes to mind and I'm really intrigued into hearing your thoughts on this. So she had chronic back issues and uh, she often couldn't do anything. So there was very limited exercises that she could actually do. And I loved it because it was a, such a big challenge. And I have been so proud of the, my ability to be able to modify exercises to suit somebody in terms of what they're able to do and not able to do. And so she was a real challenge. But I was convinced that having had an experience in you know sports science and also in psychology, that her issues were psychological. So she, as a teenager, um, had a child uh, when she was about 15. In a family, her parents were highly religious and they essentially abandoned her, kicked her out, didn't talk to her again or her child. Um, I felt like her issues with her back were related to a whole bunch of psychological stuff, which... I think she'd done some work on, she was also, in addition to having um, a regular job, uh, was a comedian. And I felt like that was one way of dealing with stuff. 
But what do you think about the idea of these physical manifestations from unresolved emotional trauma, for want of a better word? It's a very real thing and it's, um, it's actually an element of psychology in that we, we will either manifest or create or show some kind of physical ailment as a way of saying, I'm injured. Uh, as a way of recognising there's some deep trauma going on here for me and I need some kind of attention because of it. It's, it's, the, it's a, like a wounded person syndrome and it's a, very, it's a very real part of psychology. It's a very real part of not being able to release yourself from trauma but also not being able to articulate it, you know, so you can resolve that trauma or, or manage it better. It's a very common affliction actually um, and... I, I did a, a wonderful um, diploma in um, acceptance and commitment therapy, and that's where I learned about this particular issue. And it's a lot of ways that you know we suppress our difficult thoughts and feelings, and they um, because we can't deal with them, we can't accept them, we can't make room for them in our lives. So they do manifest themselves into physical ailments. But there is this condition about, you know, having a, a wounded self as a way of I'm, I'm, I'm suffering, you know, as a way of the person being able to, uh, it, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, express their trauma without being able to articulate it. Mm. I like the way you described the, uh, the cycle before, that triangle is the way I saw it, where there was a trigger, then a behaviour, and then there was a consequence. And uh, it reminds me of, you know, the cycle of a, of a habit, which is, you know, there's a trigger, then there's a behaviour, which is often a uh, routine. So a routine is just a behaviour which is frequent. Habit is a behaviour which is automatic. And then there's the reward or of some form or the consequence. Um, and then often if it is a reward, it then kicks the cycle back into gear again and strengthens it. How do you, how do you break that? Um, there's... So when we look at all of that sort of stuff, what you talked about is um, it's very, very clear and, and, and concise because you understand that, but a normal everyday person doesn't get that kind of process, right? It's automatic. So the way that you start to change those types of cycles is to actually do a process where you sit down and you articulate and, and you know, I find it very effective to write these things down in a structure to look at what is that, I mean, I'm just going to talk about the trigger, the behaviour and the consequence. What was the trigger? Who, where was it? What happened? Who was involved, you know, at what time? So you actually give that whole trigger a form and life. Then what was that behaviour that happened for me immediately after that in a very raw form? What did I, what exactly did I do? You know, this is, this is honesty stuff. And then what was the, the consequence? So what was the payoff or what was the cost of that consequence? And when you actually write that stuff down and you see this in form and you see this pattern, that's when you bring consciousness. So you connect the brain to the body in a way. And when you have this connection of your emotions, your brain, your body, everything all together, there's, it's, it's an awareness you know, it's the, you know, when you say a light bulb turns on, you can actually see this thing rather than it's just happening to you. And so when you start to go, oh, when this person says this to me, I do that. When you can see that coming, 
what I, what I teach people is when you have these type of things, what is a strategy that you can do when that happens? So what can we help you to do to say when so-and-so comes and gaslights me and says X, Y, Z to me, how can you either, you know, protect yourself or um, set a boundary you know, um, or look at what this person is doing for their own needs and not yours? Is this living by your values? You know, all of these questions that I ask the people, evoking questions that I ask the people in this course, when you can choose actually do I, do I want to then do the next behaviour, when this guy says this to me, do I really want to go and drink a bottle of wine? Do I want the hangover? Do I want to feel like crap the next day? Do I want to smell like alcohol the next day? Do I want to be angry when I go to work? You know, all of these consequences, when you look at all of that and, and you see it, you ask yourself, actually, do I want that? Is it living towards my values? Is it giving me what I need? Is it living within a boundary? You know, when, when you start to build these skills about how to live the life that you want to live, i.e. values living within a boundary and meeting your own needs, those kind of things, when you see all this pattern, you're like, oh, actually, I don't really want that at all. So I know when that guy gaslights me, I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to stand up to that or I'm not going to catch that ball that you're throwing me this time because I don't want any of this. I want my life that's filled with this, this, this and this, you know, commitment, love, happiness, compassion, you know, whatever it is that you choose that are your values in life. And that's, it's, it's that consciousness, that awareness of yourself, that's how you change that behaviour. That's awesome. Fleur, this has been a really interesting conversation and I would just like to take a moment to acknowledge you for all the work that you're doing with, uh, in particular, abused women who you are helping to improve their relationship with food and alcohol, as well as all of the other people that you're helping because I'm sure there's many more than that. Uh, and thank you for your time on the Mind Your Body show. How can people find more and connect with you? Um, so I will be um, launching the website, as I said, on the 1st of September. Um, I will. I have an Instagram page that people can follow now. For it's called Change Talk Coaching. Um, I will be launching all of the normal social medias: the um, YouTube, Facebook, blah blah blah, the whole the whole gamut. Although I don't do TikTok. <laughs> I don't do TikTok either. If people keep telling me need to get on, I need to get on. Instagram is the most powerful platform there is on the planet right now. I think so. Just stick with one and do that well. That's my plan. Yeah. I, look, I think Instagram's easy. I love it. Um, definitely I'm a talker. So, yeah, they can find me on Instagram at any time. And Facebook? And Facebook as well because Facebook groups are quite valuable. Yeah, so a part, of the, a part of the course, when you finish the course, there's a Facebook group as well um, that people can join and I will be doing weekly calls on different topics for people to, you know, come in and practice skills and practice, you know, all these things that I'm teaching them. It's, uh, you know, I have this thing of, I don't believe in like the train in hope. So I'm going to train you and then hope you're going to pick it up. Um, I really want to help people to master these skills, you know, to pick them up, to work them out, to see does it, this work for you, don't, you know, if it does, great. If it doesn't, let's shift it a little bit more and try something different because we're all very different, you know, in the way we do things. But that's what Facebook will be used for, yeah. Awesome. Love it. All right, let's get on to the 10 and 10 as we finish every episode. Are you ready for this 10 and 10? Yes. 
All right, I've been taking notes as you've been talking and I would just love to know the first thing that comes to mind whenever I say each of these, if you want to go off on a tangent and talk for 10 minutes, please feel free to do so. Okay. If you just want to give one word answer, that's fine. Okay, number one, starting a new business. Oh, it's exciting and it's been climbing a mountain. It's been huge. <laughs> number two, being run over. Oh, this is a bit dark, this one, but I promise they're not all dark. Being run over. Um. Wow. I have come to the point of everything happens for a reason. Um, It's taught me a lot about myself. And the biggest thing that this has taught me is that from that accident, um, I got what's called acquired dyslexia. So I'm dyslexic. Um, And it's been the biggest bane of my life. I've been criticised for it. I've been told I'm dumb. I've been told my attention to detail is terrible and I've got this little girl inside screaming but I can't help it. Accepting that, accepting that this happened to me has been one of the biggest freedoms of that, you know, in my, in my adult life and accepting that that little girl went through that. I've done a lot of work with inner child work on all of this, has, has given me a lot of freedom. I don't feel shame anymore. I don't allow anyone to put me down about it. I freely tell people I have dyslexia. And I, if I'm ever doing a project with someone, I warn people that this is what I have and it's something that happened to me. It's really and interesting because I, I would never have known. Like you can't see anything different on your, va- on your face. No, no, exactly. I, you know, I've got a, you know, good skin. <laughs> lucky, lucky. Good genes and good doctors, by the sounds of it, back in the day. Yes, yes. Number, three, number three, boarding school. Uh, wow, boarding school was where I, I developed my logical family, these women that, you know, I grew up with that I wasn't, um, you know, obviously born into their family, but they became my family. Um, I'm still best friends with the girl that was my best friend there. Um, it gave me a lot of independence as a woman. What grades were you in boarding school for? Um, I went from year eight, so I think I was 13, until year 12. Uh, but I have to say it was probably the best thing for me. My, I, you know, I came from a family that was a, you know, um, envy someone to your front door type of scenario. It was a very shiny, lovely, everyone loved my mother, but the stuff that happened behind closed doors in my family was not healthy and very, very toxic. So boarding school was a healthy place for me to be. That's lucky. It sounds like it was a positive thing. Number four, yeah. following your passions. Oh, gosh. Biggest thing in life. Do not wait to follow your passions. Do it as soon as you, as soon as you can and don't ever be afraid of making a mistake because when you're living in your passion and when you're in the right place, oh, it feels good. You know, every day is a joy to get up, you know, and do what you're supposed to be doing. Because I don't know how many years I spent in these corporate jobs, you know, with my knuckles, you know, dragging along the floor as I'm going into the office going, I can't believe I'm doing this. Now I'm like, you know, happy-go-lucky, tiptoeing <laughs> through the tulips every day. You know, love it. And, that's, and you're, you can see it in your whole vibe, so that's awesome. Number five, building relationships. Building your relationships, gosh. We experience who we are in relationships, you know, and I think building relationships and different relationships is is our life's work, you know, and 
relationships can can break us and it can make us. And the the one thing that I will say in all relationships is that we need boundaries. I love Healthy that. boundaries. I love it. Uh, number six, finding that person who changes you. I believe in life that we are, I, I'm a big person of, of that I believe in energy and um, I believe in life that we attract people to teach us lessons. I think every day is a school day. You know, every day is a learning experience for us all and I think that in our lives we, we will bring someone in so they can show us something that we need to see in ourselves or that we need to learn. Number seven, food. <laughs> food, food, food. I love food. Food is my life. Um, I think food is, is obviously it's essential for us to live. Uh, again, it's food, it's a very delicate, delicate thing for all of us. Um, I don't think a lot of people understand what food does to them and I think food is one is the biggest issue that we have with chronic disease today. Number eight, the big Sheila. <laughs> I was taller and broader than, and than everyone. I was a swimmer. I was a runner. Um, I was, unfortunately, you know, I think I developed much faster than everybody else. And my stepfather it was a farmer and very country bloke. Um, called out to me one day, get in here, Big Sheila, and I hated the name, absolutely hated the name. And so it stuck, didn't it, you know. And so, come on, Big Sheila, it was just my nickname. Anyway, when I finally um, wrote that blog, as I said, The Other Side, um, and I finally, you know, put my writing out to the world, I was afraid of putting my name to um my writing because I was afraid of what people would think. Now I couldn't give it possible what anyone thinks, you know, at all. But at that time I didn't have that confidence. So I called myself the big Sheila. And I because I'm so tall and I've got really long athletic legs, I was this I was in an egg cup with these two beautiful long legs coming out. So I was incognito. And I loved the fact that I was incognito and people loved the name. And because I had this sort of brand equity, I guess, from this blog, I decided to call my restaurant the big Sheila. And all these um, Singaporeans would come in and, and want to take a photo with me because I was in the paper all the time. And they're like, you're not big, you're not fat, you're just tall. Like the Singaporeans are the most uncouth, you know, um, <laughs> no bad manner. Um, so everyone expected me to be this big fat lady, but I was just a very big, tall lady. Uh, but I don't use I don't use that name anymore. <laughs> uh, I was intrigued to know whether you were going to go down the path of how the nickname as a child, the personal one, or if you are going to go down the restaurant, the branding type path. But, yeah, interesting you started off with the, the personal nickname from a child. The other yeah, thing too, well, actually, yeah, the other thing too I quickly wanted to ask, I meant to ask this before, is that blog still available online? Does that website still exist and that blog? Well, I've never taken it down, so it should be there. It's called The Other Side. Um, you know what? I'll look it up and I'll send it to you. Yeah, okay, cool. Sounds good. All right, last one, number 10. This is a question which I ask everybody, uh, and it's 
something that I'm really interested in because if there's one thing that I could, if I could do one thing in my time, it would be to time travel. So would you go forward in time or back in time? If you were going to go forward or back, to which point in time would you go to? And this is time travel so you can come back to now. You're not stuck there and have to live your life at that point. And it's certainly not Groundhog Day either. So would you go forward in time or back in time? To which point in time and why? Do I only get to go once? You know what? I've never been asked that. Yes, you get to go more than once. I would go back to every time that I suffered trauma and I would validate myself. I would go back and be my own empathetic witness for each of the times that I was abused and I would go and be there for that little girl. That's awesome. And so I think is there any way in you know, working through that, that you can do that psychologically through visualisation? Yes. Well, actually, so one of the parts of the course um, is that I do a um, you know, inner child work and I help people understand how to go back and talk to that inner child and become their own empathetic witness. I have a whole module on an empathetic witness and so I educate people about you know, why does their trauma, you know, what is the creation of trauma as in the fear story and, you know, why does it exist and what is the role of the empathetic witness? And I empower every one of my users that they can become their own empathetic witness, that they can change that story within their head and go back and do this. Um, it's like a, it's, it can be a guided meditation or it can be a completely conscious thing to go back and, and sit with that woman-child event, you know, whatever happened, and give them the validation, give them the nurturing and the need that they that they needed at that time. And it's fascinating how that changes your anxiety, your hypervigilance, your whole, you know, peace and calm. It's a very, very powerful exercise. Flo, if there was one thing you could leave the listener with in terms of one piece of advice, what would it be? Every time something doesn't go right for you, know that there is something that's right that's coming from that. And I I always, always say it's our crunchy little imperfections that make life the best. And so make mistakes, learn from them, love them, wrap yourself around them and so you know, that's okay and never be ashamed of it. Flo, what a mark drop way to end. Thank you so much. (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks for having me.